Hey, Money Multipliers. Welcome back to another episode of the Money Multiplier Podcast. And happy Valentine's Day. I have a very exciting episode today. I've actually been kind of going back to my study books and my textbook material, wanting to bring out some more knowledge about, you know, why are we over here teaching privatized banking? Why is it so important? And uh, so really, I, I know today's Valentine's Day, and I thought this would be the perfect first episode to kind of come on here and talk about, you know, hey, let's talk about since it's love day, let's talk about the marriage that we didn't ask for. And, and actually, I am joined here by my mega nerd friend, John. So what's going on, John? Hi, Hannah. And happy Valentine's Day to you and all your listeners. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm super excited for what we got in store. Uh, it should be pretty interesting. <laughs> Very good. No, but, but thanks for joining me because honestly, I mean, we have some really good offline conversations. And so I thought it would just be really cool to bring this to the community and to the public. And I mean, really, this podcast series is meant to properly inform you on what our government, our elites have failed us to teach the, to the middle class people. We, we, we're going to kind of go through some uncomfortable topics and really expose the true economy and financial picture of what's happening here in America. So and actually what kind of ticks me off is, is that all of this is happening right underneath our noses. And it just astonishes me that not more people. People are, are livid about this. But but then I kind of digress and I say, well, Hannah, you can't really be mad because nobody else is informed on what's going out there as well. So really, I, we're going to be going through a book and we're going to be breaking down the socially accepted cartel known as the Federal Reserve System. And, and so this book, it's called The Creature from Jekyll Island. It, it, it's written by G. Edward Griffin. Okay, go on Amazon. You can go, um, honestly, go buy it anywhere. And, and so this is the material that we'll be going through. Now, I think the first part that we should talk about is, honestly, I just wanted to read y'all the introduction to the creature of Jekyll Island because I thought this was very, very powerful. So in here, Griffin kind of goes in. He says, what is the Federal Reserve System? The answer may surprise you. It is not federal and there are no reserves. Furthermore, the Federal Reserve banks are not even banks. So it's very, very interesting. And we're kind of gonna we're gonna go through it and, and dissect and really peel back the onion of what's going on. Yeah, and just to let you guys know, um, Hannah and I are gonna try our best to break down the information that we really want to share. Um, all this stuff, we're taking it straight out of the book, trying to condense it down to a form that you guys can hear, you guys can comprehend. Um, it is an intimidating subject. If you're not familiar with any of the technical jargon we use or cannot follow the concepts we discuss, you know, you might need to re-listen to it. You might need to pick up a copy and read it for yourself. Um, we'll touch back on a lot of the information uh, in this book. Uh, the author, Griffin, he loves to jump around in history. Um, it's not a textbook, so it doesn't follow any kind of chronological order. Um, if you get lost, just try to stick around for the big ideas. Some of them are truly unbelievable. <laughs> um, yeah. So at the very least, just remain curious. You know, you might find things that you want to go off and do your own research about, um, you know, whether you trust us or not. If you come to a conclusion with your own research, then 
<laughs> that's that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to add too, you know, don't hit uh, what Nelson calls is arrival syndrome, right? What well, one of the human principles that Nelson Nash always teaches us to overcome is, is that, that there's always more out there to learn. We don't know everything. And so just be open and accepting to new ideas uh, of what could be possible out there of what's going on. So, all right, we'll, we'll kind of dive into it. We'll, we'll get into chapter one and really this whole section, it, it's called What Creature Is This? So we'll kind of go back to the very beginning and we'll talk about the journey to Jekyll Island. Yeah, right. So we're just going to do chapter one and two today, um, you know, getting and diving straight into chapter one. It's titled The Journey to Jekyll Island. You know, we're going to really dive into the creation of our modern Federal Reserve System We'll look at, you know, who are the players involved in creating this. And I'll add for this is the fourth Federal Reserve System America has actually ever had. Mm -hmm. We'll learn about in future series or future episodes. I hope will happen to the previous three. Not very good, but <laughs> we'll get there. Um, you know, we're going to go into a few examples of how the Fed uses its power to create money out of nothing for the supposed benefit to the American taxpayer. Um, but as you listen, as you might read, whatever you do on your own, it will let you guys be the judge of what benefits we actually receive from it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's take it back. So we're here in the year of 1910. So in the year of 1910, and it's we're here in November. So in November, and actually it's going to be a cool, chilly night in November up in New Jersey. So, so the year is 1910, we're up there in New Jersey, and we're at the railway station where actually six men boarded a private rail car headed to South Brunswick, Georgia. Then the car on the side, it was actually labeled Aldrich. And in this private car that was heading south, this is a senator, Senator Nelson Aldrich. It was his private car. He was uh, known very well as a as he was a Rhode Island senator. And, and actually, the New York folks and even Washington, D.C. people really knew him because he was a powerful political and even businessman there on Wall Street. So, so Aldrich, it was his car, and he boarded it with five other men. And, and these five other men, what was really interesting and weird that, that we're reading about is, is that they were all asked to arrive at the station separately, okay, so that they wouldn't draw news attention or media attention towards them. So they were asked to all come to this uh, uh, railway station separately and discreetly. And and honestly, to the even to the point that they only spoke on a first names basis. They didn't use any last names when they were there meeting and talking to one another on the railroad cars. Yeah, I wish you know we had the level of descriptiveness Griffin uses to be able to describe just the, the in I guess grasp the level of secrecy surrounding this meeting. They you know what they publicly said was it was a duck hunting trip. Um, and there's actually a story. One of these men had never even hunted ducks before. He never even knew how to shoot a shotgun, but yet he had it carrying with him on, on the, the trail car with him. Um, and, you know, like you, you want to think about, you know, if something like this happened today, how would the media respond? How would you respond if, you know, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Bloomberg and any senator or congressman got together 
um, and boarded a private jet and came back a week later and then tried to pass a bill through Congress, you're going to be like, the hell, guys, like, you know, what's what's going on here? You're going to think some shady things are going on. Yeah. So the, the, it's the same situation just 120 years ago or 110 years ago. Sorry. Um, but, you know, we're, we're going to take a good look at who was on the train that night with uh, Senator Nelson Aldridge. So obviously, first we have him. Uh, Mr. Aldridge is the Republican whip in the Senate, chairman of the National Monetary Commission. He's a business associate of J.P. Morgan, father-in-law to John D. Rockefeller Jr. Already some big names right there. Mm-hmm. Um, second, we have Abraham Pyatt Andrew. He is the assistant secretary of the U.S. Treasury. Third, we have Frank A. Vanderlip, president of the National City Bank of New York, one of the most powerful banks at the time. Um, uh, National City Bank of New York represents uh, the interest of William Rockefeller and the international banking house of Kuhn Loeb and Company over in Europe. Um, fourth person on the train, we have Henry P. Davison, senior partner of the J.P. Morgan Company. Um, Davison is actually one of the owners of Jekyll Island, uh, just off the coast of Brunswick. Um, fifth, we have Benjamin Strong, head of the J.P. Morgan Bankers Trust Company. And last but not least, we have Paul M. Warburg. Uh, Mr. Warburg is a partner in the Kuhn Loeb and Company, a representative of the Rothschild banking dynasty in England and France, brother to Max Warburg, who's head of the Warburg Banking Consortium in Germany and Netherlands. Um, it's very important to you know recognize the, the level of power that these six men hold. Um, and it's not known exactly for sure, but over the last hundred years, as more and more pieces of evidence are put together, you know, it's a conservative estimate that at this point in history, these six men controlled a quarter of all the wealth in the world. Mm-hmm. A quarter. Like, that's that's insane, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. and, then, and then here's the thing, too. It's difficult to imagine any event in history, like, like even including for preparation for war, that that was shielded from the public view with this great mystery and secrecy. So 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 then it kind of comes to about, all right, well, why did all these men go down there and, and go to Jekyll Island? Why did they have this meeting? And, and so really the whole meeting was about creating blueprints for the central bank in, in the United States. So so with the expertise and knowledge of Warrenberg and the political Senator Aldridge, they, they drafted a bill to sneak a banking cartel into existence. Now, that's a very I know that's a very bold statement, but just hear us out on that. So so before you think we've gone off and, and spoiled the whole story for you, it's kind of ironic that the question is not really what it's it's really more interesting of why. Why are they doing this? Not the what behind it. Yeah, exactly. And I have two notes on this real quick. Um, you know, we need to know at this point in 1910, uh, control over financial resources is pretty well advanced. It's it's pretty well solidified who the big players are. Um, you have two groups: the Americans of the more of the Morgans and the Rockefellers, um, and then the European side of things with the Rothschilds and the Warburgs. Um, within each of these organizations is just an uncomprehendable maze of commercial banks, acceptance banks, investment firms, thing associated with money you can think of. Their names are attached to a few branches of it. Um, the second thing I have is that at this point in history, the U.S. economy operates on a fixed gold standard. Thanks to the Gold Standard Act of 1900, gold was redeemable at $20.67 an ounce. 
Now, to the political scientists and these businessmen, you know, we'll we'll go on a little and read a little bit further about how you know this was a, a pretty big hindrance to their profitability, as we'll call it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, so I just want to read a little bit from the book. And actually, so this is an article that was posted. Um, it was around the time of 1913. This was actually in the meeting where the, the Federal Reserve Act became a law. And, and it reads here. Your committee is satisfied from from the proof submitted that there is an established and well-defined identity and community of interest between a few leaders of finance, which has resulted in great and rapidly growing concentration of the control of money and credit in the hands of these few men. So I can continue reading on, but this just kind of sparks one of the things that Nelson Nash does teach us as well is, is that, you know, the golden rule, the one who has the gold makes the rules. So it continues on to say, under our system of issuing and distributing corporate securities, the investing public does not buy directly from the corporation. The securities travel from the issuing house through middlemen to the investor. So, so, so basically, I mean, they're setting up, I mean, again, not to go back to this word, but they're setting up this, this entity for the benefits of these leading politicians or elites that are up there. So really, what was the purpose of this trip? This trip was to come together and create this agreement on the structure and the operation of this banking cartel. So so I guess, John, I ask you, I mean, I mean, what is a cartel in that traditional sense? Yeah, so there's a lot of different definitions you might come across. Um, you know, and, and I think any of them at some scope can be used very well to describe the or, organ, what kind of organization the Federal Reserve System we have really is. Um, I actually really like how Griffin describes it. Um, he defines a cartel as a group of independent businesses which join together to coordinate the production, pricing, or marketing of their members. The purpose of a cartel is to reduce competition through a shared monopoly over their industry, which forces the public to pay higher prices for their goods and services and would otherwise be required under free market competition. You know, take a second to digest that. Again, replay it if you need to, or read it for yourself in the book. Um, you, you know, at this meeting on Jekyll Island were representatives of the world's leading banking consortia, the biggest names we've ever heard of in re- regards to money. You know, we had the Morgans, Rockefellers, Rothschilds, Warburgs, you know, and the Kuhn Loeb Company, uh, five of the most ruthless money dynasties in modern history were coming together to save themselves from, you know, one of those, my the friend or the enemy of my enemy is my friend situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, then you have to look into who is the enemy. Um, and it is the, the evolvement of, you know, I guess, uh, society or whether it be our culture um, our business practices, you know, our knowledge, whatever you want to attribute it to. Um, and I'll let you guys brush up on your pre-1900s financial history in your own time. Very exciting topic. A lot of very interesting things. Yeah. That's my my nerd coming out there. Um, but to sum up, you know, we had the, the South and the West were booming. Uh, people and industry were just flooding out of the big cities because it was cheaper, you know, to, to move out, move away from the cities. You know, there was work. 
actually available. You know, there was things to do. There was reasons to leave the big cities. Um, and with those people, you know, when you have a system that is backed by gold, you know, their bank deposits go with them. You know, they're not going to leave money in a bank that if in New York, if they're never going to go back to New York again, right? They're going to take all their money and gold with them. So one of the the biggest you know things that they had that these six men you know came to Jekyll Island to figure out was they had to find a way to you know navigate this just absolute bleeding of their banks um, in, in the society. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, because because I know that that is a very good point, because when people did leave the big cities, they, absolutely. They took their deposits with them and then they started doing business with other banks that were, were there in their home local town of where they're settling at now. And so and so when those folks then took their deposits, I mean, now this banker. Right. How do banks profit and make their money and their dollars? Well, they lend it right They're in the lending business. And so and so one thing that these banks had to. To figure out is, is that if these folks are going to be going out there and taking their deposits, I have no cash that I can lend out. And maybe I got to go find more prospects of people that I got to go lend to. And that's more overhead costs for me. And hopefully that's making sense. So, so, so fundamentally for the banks, if there are no loans, there's no interest and the banks have no business. So, so I, I guess as well, I want to add at this time, uh, that there was a limit to how much these bankers could lend out because absolutely we were tied to that supply of gold that they held. And so at this time of the 1900s, the 1910 era was when these elite players started intervening in the free markets that we had in the economy at the time. And they had to tip the interest rates artificially low to favor these debts over cash. Or, or thrift is another term for it. Yeah, and I just want to you know go back and say this again and elaborate on it a little bit because it is a it is a critical point um, that you know industry and even the federal government at the time was finding a way to you know grow with their own profits. They didn't need banks at this time, um, you, you know, and we there was a true free market when it came to borrowing money. There is a real balance between loan interest rates and you know the cost of capitalizing independently. Rates were low enough to make it accessible and a viable option if it was needed, but it was also high enough to prevent you know reckless borrowing for whatever frivolous ventures you know people wanted to go off and do whatever they wanted with basically. Exactly. And, and I and I mean, that that's honestly why. So the, there's one of the, the heads of, of the Nelson Nash Institute. His name is Robert Murphy. And I mean, that's why he's so passionate about educating the public on what a true free market really is and minimizing the government intervention. And it, it, he's very, very interesting. Go, go listen to him. It, the, the Robert uh, uh, Murphy report is out there on podcast. But but anyways, get back to it, John. So, no, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the financiers wanted to do what they wanted to do was to create this tool for them to forcefully lower the bank rates to make borrowing the better choice at the time. Yeah, and it wasn't just at the time. They wanted to make, you know, taking out a loan and borrowing the better choice all the time. You know, yeah. we even see this in in our lives today. You know, we've been through the last three years where money was dumb cheap, right? <laughs> like, you could go out and get a loan, you know, I remember Amex offering me $25,000 loans at 
you know, a, a percent and a half. And it's just like, <laughs> you just got to ask those deeper questions. Um, but we'll get back into the story now. Uh, but yeah, again, this is happening. This is all happening in a time of relative prosperity for the United States. Like I said before, even the federal government was reducing its, li- its budget liabilities. Um, it was very effect- effectively systematically redeeming the uh, issued greenbacks from the Civil War. Um, you know, they were turning a profit from taxes. Um, but yeah, I'll let you go into the rest of Hannah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just want to touch on, you know, the, the biggest problem that these men had to overcome when they were creating this entity that we know of as the Federal Reserve System is, is that they had to overcome the spectator of these bank failures in the United States. So thanks to the fundamentals of banking and the widespread lack of knowledge of the philosophy at work, you know, bank runs and currency drains were a very real problem that they had to deal with. So really, another reason they came together was to kind of fix or or maybe put a Band-Aid on these uh, uh, bank runs and currency drains that were going on. Yeah. And real quick, Hannah, do you mind just going through, you know, what is a bank run? What is a currency drain? Um, I, I know me four years ago, I would have never heard of those terms. So. Yeah, no, no, I'm glad you asked. So so we'll make this very easy and very simple. OK, so let let's imagine. We have a system of two people, and we'll call them John and Hannah, okay? So so John and Hannah, we have money, and we're depositors, and there's two banks, okay? So there's two banks. And to start, let's consider this arrangement independent of fractional reserve banking practices. So we'll, we'll get into that. I know it's a large word. But so let's make believe that John works and John makes $15,000. He goes down to bank A and he deposits his money. Bank A now has the assets of the 15,000, but it also has the liability of the 15,000. Because right when you, when John that depositor goes and puts money down at the bank, the banker has to pay John that interest that they're owing him, and they have to make sure that they have those funds there on hand because they're promising us that they're going to make these payable on demand. If I take my 15000 and go leave it with you, you're making sure that when I come back, my 15000 is going to be there. So basically, how does this bank turn this liability of the fifteen into an asset? So me... I'm a businesswoman, all right? So I'm a businesswoman and I I already have $40,000 deposited down in bank B, all right? So I'm doing business with bank B. And and so now I am in the market to get a loan because I want to borrow $50,000 for my new clothing store that I want to open. And so what I do is I go down to the bank manager, I put out my my blueprints and my business plan, and guess what? They think it's a cool idea and they give me that loan. And they say, "All right, Hannah, we'll give you this loan of 50,000." So now, Bank B only has $40,000 that I deposited there with them. So in order for them to give me that loan of the 50, Bank B has to go borrow money from Bank A. Bank A is very happy to make that loan over to Bank B. 
And how are they going to get that loan money? Well, Bank A has $15,000 of John's deposit that he left there. So Bank A is just going to use John's, a portion of his $15,000, and lend it over to Bank B. And so, so at this point, I mean, it's fine and dandy because John has his money safely in his bank account. Hannah now has her loan for the clothing store. Bank A over here is collecting interest on that $10,000 loan that it gave to Bank B. And Bank B is making interest on the $50,000 loan that it gave to Hannah. It's all fine and dandy. Everything's working out, right? Well, here's where the problem arises. The problem arises when unexpectedly, let's make believe that John's car breaks down. And when John's car breaks down, he needs to pay to fix it. So what John does is he goes to Bank A where he left his deposit and he's asking to withdraw $8,000 of his original 15. Well, this is a big problem because Bank A already loaned some of his money over to Bank B. So now Bank A only has a certain amount of money, 5000 that's left in that vault. Because remember, John had his 15, Bank A lends 10 to Bank B. So now they only have left the five. Well, John's coming back and requesting 8000 of it out. So, so now what John just did is he did a run on his own bank. It's the fundamental theory of banking that all depositors won't seek immediate withdrawal of their deposits. So, so this is what's called the fractional reserve banking system. So what banks are doing is, is that when you leave $1 down there with them, they can lend up to $9 for every $1 they have back there on their reserves from, from their depositors. So do you see the problem now? So, so the only way that they're really practically putting this into, into place is that, well, we hope and we think that not everybody is going to come and do the, run on the banks at the same point in time and request all of their money out at the same point in time. So now up to this point, only some of the depositors will seek some of their deposits. The banks are just simply playing that odds that will work out most of the time. So when the masses of these depositors want their money and the bank doesn't have it because they already loaned it all out, the bank becomes insolvent. And that's what we call a run on the banks. So quickly, I want to go in. There's another little section I want to read here that kind of gave a really good visual example of this. And just to, to take it away from monetary value and kind of put it into like a simple, like fourth grade education style. Because I mean, honestly, that, that's the way I love to teach. Let's keep it simple. That's my KISS principle. Keep it super simple. So, so actually, so Griffin goes in here and he's talking about, you know, all right, well, let's make believe that I want to go in and I am checking my hat. I'm going to go to a play and I want to check my hat or check my coat, right? So, so they want to go in and check their hat. So in these deposits, when we go and make them down at the bank, these bankers are making that contractual promise that they're going to hold our deposits and make it payable upon demand. Well, let's do it with the hat scenario. So if I take my hat and go give it to the hat chauffeur, I don't know good name to call them. I don't, I, they probably have a better name. But they go give it's it the hat them. check guy. 
Wait, wait, say that again. The hat check guy. The hat check guy. That's it. So when I go get my give my hat to the hat check guy, I expect when I come back that I'm going to get my same hat, right? So, so he continues on to say, when we give our hat to the hat check girl and obtain a receipt for it, we don't expect her to rent it out while we eat dinner, hoping she'll get it back or one just like it in time for our departure. We expect all the hats to remain there all the time. So there will be no question of getting ours back precisely when we want it. How is that any different to what we're doing with our money? Right. All right. So let's rewind it back to our example to when everything was fine and dandy. All right. Let's take it back now to cover currency drain. All right. So to take it back where everything is fine. All right. So bank A loans their money to bank B. So then bank B could give Hannah a business loan. Well, now John's car breaks down. He has $8,000 that he has to repair on it. But this time, Bank A seeks payback of its loan from Bank B. But there's a problem. Bank B doesn't have it. Because remember, it's loaned out to Hannah because Hannah wanted it for that business loan. Thus, now a bank run between the banks is occurring. And this is what's called currency drain. And you, you got to think about this as an example of, you know, a real world where you have, you know, th hundreds of thousands of depositors on both banks. You know, money is going back and forth constantly. Um, and, and, you know, between bigger banks, you know, most of the time, hopefully it's, an, it's just internal transactions. Um, it's just a, a matter of changing numbers in people's online bank accounts. Um, but sometimes the money actually has to move hands from bank A to bank B. Um, and from back from bank B back to back bank A. Um, so again, typically they do this, you know, just via bookkeeping. Um, but you know, it, it, when eventually the time comes that one of the banks gets close to insolvency and it'll, you know, I guess refuse to repay whatever it owes to another bank, that's a currency drain right there. Um, and, you know, we'll go into a little bit of the banking philosophy here now. Banking Banks are highly motivated to loan up or lend as much money as they possibly can um, at rates that are competitive with their rivals. At the end of the day, that's that's how banks make their money. And, the you know, these are very reckless lending strategies because they're the banks are in competition with themselves. Right. So, you know, if you know, even if a very stable, sound bank you know, is offering you a loan at, let's say, 6% hypothetically, hopefully you could even get that now, 6%, um, <laughs> you know, the reckless bank is going to offer you the same amount of money at 3%. You know, what's what's a borrower going to do? They're going to go to the bank with 3%. So that forces just via free market competition, the, the strong bank to stoop its rates down in order to get the business. Um, and, you know, we're at a point in history where, this was, you know, playing out multiple times over the patterns were starting to become apparent. Um, it happened in you know, 1873, 1884, 1893, 1907. Um, and I personally think that this is actually one of the few benefits that the Federal Reserve Act offered. Um, and but we'll still see how it was easy for that to be manipulated and you know taken advantage of. But the, the banks needed a regulation to 
not necessarily eliminate, but mitigate competition. Um, you know, if all banks were required to walk the same line regarding reserve ratios, then it, you know, it would mitigate the difference. I guess you know, take out the difference between a weak and a strong bank. They would all be forced to play by the rough same set of rules. Um, you know, and that kind of leads to a little bit worse situation where the entire banking industry either works or it doesn't. Yeah, I don't know. But but my little devil advocate on my shoulder, I, I'm thinking, hey, maybe it might be a great thing for our economy. Who knows? Who knows? We'll dive into it. So uh, another benefit to this that I want to add that um, it was removed the face of blame. So if all banks failed, the blame could be shifted then to the system or to the economy or government regulation. So so individual banks were then freed from this burden. Yeah, but, you know, this was a very hidden benefit that the six men that went to Jekyll Island sought, um, you know, by making the, the, poly, the lending practices of their own banks, you know, a, a problem of the national economy rather than their reckless practices. You know, the door was opened for, you know, the, the, the use of government funds to pick up the losses for the bailouts. Um, and this is where things get really interesting <laughs> in my mind. Um, and we're going to touch on this a few times, actually. Yeah. All right. And and to solve all of these problems, they had to do a few things. All right. So they had to, number one, stop the growing competition from the nation's newer, smaller banks. Number two, they had to obtain a franchise to create money out of nothing for the purpose of lending. And this was achieved later on in history by disconnecting from the gold standard. And um, honestly, I think I'll even probably do a whole other episode on, on the gold standard and how important it was to the free market. But we'll continue on. Uh, the third one right get control of the reserves of all the banks so that the more reckless ones would not be exposed to bank runs and currency drains another reason they had to get the taxpayers to pick up the cartels and inevitable losses that they have um lastly i'm thinking as well that they have to convince the nation and congress that the purpose of the agreement was to protect the public right Exactly. Um, and, and this is where I drop the bomb on you guys listening that that's all just in chapter one. And we just kind of scratched the surface of it. <laughs> yeah. So what, what do you think? Annie? you want to keep going or give everyone a little taste of what to expect? Yeah, no, I think I think we should keep going. I think that we so we kind of have the ground foundation knowledge of what is the Fed? How was it created? Why, in a sense, was it created? We're going to keep diving into more, more, more about the why behind it. But but really, it's main objectives of why the men met. And then now it's really just talking to the point of, all right, well, how do we deliver this message to the, the people now and telling the people in Congress that, hey, this is a really good idea that everybody should do. So let, let's talk about it, because coming up here next, I want to keep y'all on your toes, but there's a lot of information that we can unpack here. And 
I think I want to really touch on and kind of go into, like I said, it's kind of an uncomfortable conversation about how the Federal Reserve System really does cozy right up nice and neat to the federal government. And so we'll look into real examples throughout history and how these partnerships played out and for these these uh, benefits, there we go, for the benefits of the American taxpayer. So, so we'll look at how FDIC insurance isn't even really insurance. And I'm I'm telling y'all, this is why I get a little grumpy with you when you ask me this question. Hannah, is my IBC policy backed up by the FDIC? Okay, I'm about to mic drop on y'all when John and I start to uncover what the FDIC really is. And then we're going to look at the collapse and the bailout of the SNL industry and honestly, whatever other topics that might come up during this time. So let's get into it this chapter is very very interesting it's called the name of the game is bailout and this is talking about bailouts and i know even like a a common topic that's been around like in the infinite banking space has been bail-ins as well so in this chapter we're going to look at the five objectives that these members of jekyll islands meetings had to fulfill so one of which was to design a way for the federal government AKA the American taxpayer to pick up the tab left by the reckless lending practices of these cartel members of the banks. So now we are going to scratch the surface and how that is accomplished. Yeah, to do this, uh, Griffin actually has a very good analogy comparing the Federal Reserve System to the game of American football, Um, you know, where each move that they make is like a play of the game. You know, the objectives are clear. If you've never watched, you know, think about if you've never actually watched a game of American football, it's going to be absolute chaos. You're you're not going to know what's going on. But to the players, it's very well organized. You know, they have a game plan. They know what they're doing. You know, they do have to fight a little bit, but, you know, they want to score touchdowns. Um, I do think if you do want to read this on their own, there is a lot of value in reading this specific chapter for yourself. Um, And as the chapter is called, the name of the game is bailout. It seems fitting that this is, you know, one of the main objectives of the Fed to shift the losses from bank owners to the taxpayers. That's it. And I think one of the first steps to accomplishing this objective is to allow the commercial banks to really create this checkbook money out of nothing. So we'll get into this much deeper and later on. So I'll kind of stick to the basics for right now. So the banks, they had the ability to lend out this money, which they have created out of nothing for the purpose of collecting interest. This is called Mandrake mechanism. When this loan is placed on the bank's books, it is shown as an asset because it earns interest and someday it will be paid back. At the same time, an equal entry is added to the liability side of the ledger with this newly created money that is now in circulation. It's going to go through its life. It'll be transacted and transferred. But most of this money will wind up back into the into other banks where the value of the loan is sought between the other bank and the issuing bank. So there's also the unlikely scenario 
where individuals will seek a cash payout on this checkbook money. Therefore, the issuing bank has a potential cash payout liability equal to the amount of the loan asset. John, do you want to break it down? Exactly. But, you know, we need to mention that you know, a bookkeeping loss is still undesirable to the bank. Um, and forgive me, this is going to get pretty deep into, <laughs> I, I guess, the, the accounting of a bank. So I might I'll try not to bore you too much. Um, but again, it's, it's very undesirable to the bank because it causes the loan to be removed from the asset side of the ledger. Um, and, you know, as without a reduction in liabilities, as we all hopefully remember from our accounting 101 class, you know, the accounting equation assets equals liabilities plus owner's equity. The original checkbook money is still out in the economy. And remember, they have to, you know, they have to prepare, you know, for the eventuality that someone or a bunch of people come back to the bank to seek that out in a cash payout. Right. Mm -hmm. So that money drops as an asset, but it stays as a liability. Um, so to write off the loan, that becomes a very real deduction to the equity side of the bank, right? Um, yep. In any way this happens, the owner of the bank, whether it's shareholders or you know whether it is an actual part or majority owner, um, mm -hmm. is going to lose an amount equal to the amount of the original loan. Um, if that loan write-off amount becomes larger than the equity of the bank, becomes insolvent. Um, and, you know, we, we live in an era now with the, our whole fractional reserve borrowing system where that can happen very easily and very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and honestly, this is usually the case when we're talking about small loans or loans given to individuals or small businesses. But I mean, let's take it on the larger scale. I mean, what if these loans are given to these massive corporations or foreign countries? I, I mean, the door is now open for these bankers to go to the federal government and state their concerns that these losses are bad for the public. You know, if these big, massive corporations are going to go bankrupt, I mean, there's going to be uh, uh, chaos in the streets. Widespread economic disruption is going to come, right? Government, we can just not have that happen, right? So this is the game as we see it, right? The act of banks giving loans with money that they've created out of nothing. Um, so going back to the football analogy, let's take a look at some of the plays that the monetary scientists and politicians uh, will run in order to make this, you know, seem like a game and more organized chaos instead of the reality that it actually is. So for simplicity's sake, you know, let's just consider the big, you know, third world country loans. You know, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars at a time. These are the big, fat, juicy loans that these big banks love to get their hands on. Mm -hmm. um, so the first one is the perpetual debt play. You know, the banks have little motivation to be cautious about these types of loans. Uh, we'll get into some of the reasons for that, you know, later on. But just, you know, think about a $25,000 loan to your coworker has the same, you know, process, you know, takes the same, like, I guess, processing ability from the bank as a multi-million dollar loan given to a third world country. You know, when a loan given to them defaults, the banks will have a much easier time arguing for the public's, you know, interests um, with the, you know, the federal government to intervene in those. 
Because you see, banks don't want you to repay your loans. I mean, if you repay your loans, this means that the banks aren't making any interest, thus they ain't making any money. So banks will also run the play of this debt rollover as they will try to work with their borrower by lowering payments. Uh, they may even lower it to interest only. And thus now this borrower is never, never making any payments towards the principal of the loan itself. The banks are then betting on these loans never being repaid. So the objective here is that perpetual interest that this borrower is always going to incur for the rest of its life, essentially. So then maybe the borrower will get tired of only making the, the interest only on these loans, and maybe they will request another loan from the bank, and, and they will take that loan to help pay for the original loan, plus the additional fees on that additional loan as well. And so now that borrower is happy for a little while, but now they get tired again, and they stop making payments and rinse and repeat. So, John, I mean, talk to us. Well, what's the next play? Let's talk about the rescheduling play. So, yeah, let's, we'll look at loan rescheduling, you know, and, and that can come in a combination of lower interest rates or a longer period of time for repayment. You know, again, going back, remember, it's in the bank's best interest to perpetuate this debt. You know, they want to be collecting the interest payments on it. So as this extends further and further into the future, you know, borrowers are going to continue to work to be able to pay off that loan and work for the bank. So you can see how, you know, quickly this becomes very hard to, to get out of this financial hamster wheel um, that we, we've all been led to believe is so good and in our best interests, right? So now I want to pivot to what would happen when dealing with, you know, large corporations or foreign countries. The, you know, the Fed is going to uh, assist in guaranteeing those payments on behalf of the foreign countries to the private banks, right? So this is our federal government, aka the American taxpayer, being a co-signer to the loan given to a third world country. And, you know, sometimes that might not be the best business model. You know, there, there's a lot of situations where, you know, there might be, um, you know, famines or water shortages, you know, very, you know, very bad things going on. And these banks make these loans to these countries. Um, and, you know, almost all of this new fiat money this day and age is coming from the Federal Reserve System. This mm -hmm. money is, you know, quickly deployed into the economy where it dilutes the value of the money already, you know, in circulation. Um, and this is where we get the hidden tax of inflation. Mm-hmm. All day long. Now, let's kind of take it back and let's talk about the FDIC and really what it is. Because, I mean, this FDIC, it guarantees that every insured deposit will be paid back regardless of the financial condition of the bank. Because, because actually, just real quick, John, you're telling me that, that the government is taking my, no, I shouldn't say the government, but the banks, the banks are taking my money and they're lending it out to these third world countries and, and the government is being a co-signer on these loans and they're using my money to do it. Where's my saying that? I thought we live in a democracy. Anywho. That's, that's exactly what I'm telling you is going on. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the FDIC and what it really is. The FDIC guarantees that every insured deposit will be paid back regardless of the financial condition of the bank. 
So the FDIC funds are accumulated, not by the bank, not that they have this insurance funds that they create this fund, but, but really this fund is created where they charge us, the depositor, higher service fees and lower interest rates on our deposits that we leave there with them. So this FDIC protection is not insurance in any sense of the word. If it was true bank insurance, then the banks with the higher riskier loans would have to pay more versus the banks with the sound loans that are there on the books this would then raise eyebrows to the public of who what of who they would want to do business with it would just become very apparent so the fdic is merely a part of this political scheme to bail out the most influential members of the banking cartel when rough water hits and so the people who created the problem seldom suffer the economic consequences of these actions that they're doing. So, so just real quick, I, I mean, it just really astonishes me that, that people don't know more about this and they just think that, oh, because it has the word insurance backed up behind it, that it, it must be insurance and it must be in that good moral of what insurance really is. No, it's not that in any sense of the word. It's a really terrible marketing scheme, in my opinion. Right. And, you know, the FDIC, while not necessarily part of government, it, it is backed by the full faith and credit of the federal government. The FDIC is, you know, a you know, coverage we pay for, whether we know it or not, or whether we like it or not. Um, and they operate roughly on the same philosophies of the bank. Banks, uh, you know, they, they hope only a small percentage of banks will ever actually need the money that they can provide, um, you know, the FDIC only holds about 70 cents for every hundred dollars in covered deposits. Um, so once the FDIC runs out of money, which can happen very quickly, um, they turn to Congress and the Treasury for help with their bailout. Right. So Congress has no money either. They turn to the Treasury for bonds, um, you know, and how this, you know, we'll get into this more later on about how exactly how it works. But, you know, the Fed is the one who picks up those bonds. Right. Mm -hmm. And but but how can the Fed pick up those bonds if the Fed doesn't have any money either? They make money out of nothing. Right. Oh. <laughs> they they you know, they respond by creating money out of thin, thin air equal to the amount of the bond law purchase. Um, and thanks to the magic of central banking, the FDIC is fully funded. Right. So from there, you know, it floods through the economy, you know, it gets dispersed to, you know, the bank depositors, um, you know, again, diluting the value of money in the economy, causing inflation, causing prices to rise, taxing us unknowingly or unavoidably. Um, and, you know, this is what is meant by the full faith and credit of the federal government. Right. Yeah. It's like we're in a fairy tale storybook and they just can create anything that they want, right? And now, and now I, I don't mean to be controversial at, at all. I, I mean, one of the things my dad has always taught me in business, you don't talk about sex, politics, or religion because you're bound to piss off somebody. But I think it's very important just to understand what's going on here. And, and, I, and I think you're absolutely right. 
before we kind of end here today, because I think kind of right here is where we should end so that at, uh, the community can kind of soak in what we're explaining here. But just one more excerpt, excerpt, there we go, from, from uh, Griffin's book here. This was the golden moment for which the Federal Reserve and the FDIC were created. Without government intervention, banks would have collapsed. Its stockholders would have been wiped out, depositors would have been badly damaged, and the financial world would have learned that banks not only have to talk about prudent management, they actually have to do it. Future banking practices would have been severely altered and the long-term economic benefit to the nation and world would have been enormous. But with government intervention, the discipline of a free market is suspended and the cost of failure and fraud is passed to the taxpayers. Depositors continue to live in a dream world of false security and banks can op operate re recklessly and fraudulently with the knowledge that their political partners will come to their rescue when they get into trouble. It's just very, very interesting. And again, I think we should end here today with the debunking of the Fed and the FDIC. I mean, we're going to go into further depths in next episodes to come. So John's going to come back on. I'm going to have him here, force him on whether he likes it or not. And so we're going to dive into real life situations and examples of the bailouts in our country, foreign countries, and how they affected us as American tax paying middle class people. So here's where I leave you off with. I kind of want to ask you two questions because, John, I, I do this at the end of every segment where um, listeners will write in and ask me questions about the infinite banking concept. But actually, I want to ask the public these two questions. And one of the questions I want to ask the audience for y'all to ponder on this week is, is that now that you understand what fractional reserve banking, the central banks, the Fed and the FDIC, what they really are, why are you so gung-ho to leave your money there with them? And why are you afraid to capitalize your deposits into your bank? And what I'm talking about are your premium deposits that you're putting into your policy. Why are you so scared to capitalize your bank? You're not very scared to capitalize someone else's bank. And this is why Nelson Nash taught us the number one rule, capitalize, 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 never be afraid to capitalize. Because honestly, if you don't, then for the rest of your life, you're going to be in those financial bonds to the other financial institutes because you have no nest egg, no wealth to do the things that you want to do to live here on this God-given earth that we call America. And then and I guess my second question that I want to ask y'all is, is that do you believe that there is a larger ag agenda that's here that's at stake to further demolish the middle class so that we will be slaves to the government? Just think about it. So anyways, John, any last minute comments or anything that you want to add as we close off here? I definitely want to encourage everyone to maybe, you know, pick up a copy, follow along with us, uh, you know, be able to do some of this reading for yourself and really dive deeper into it than we can get to in, you know, an hour long podcast. And we'll even go through other books. I know, John, you, you yeah. have another book soon that, that we'll even dive into. 
So no, I, I appreciate you being here. Actually, we're even recording on a, a school night. It's late night when we're recording, <laughs> so this is fun. So thank you for joining me. And um, and, and as always, uh, share your feedback. Uh, like the podcast. Give us a like on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all of the social media platforms. You can find the links down below. And uh, and just remember, y'all, share share this podcast. Just share this powerful knowledge with your family and friends because the government works for us we the people we the people do not work for the government and y'all just need to be properly informed so as always i ask you do your dollars make sense and until next time i'll catch you then